Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Do I have kids? Yes, I have two daughters. Where are they? Welcome to Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host, Armand Haddad. Hello and welcome to another episode of Syndicates. I am your host, Armand Haddad. This season, we are shining the spotlight on art house films and the power of cinema within our lives. Today's focus is the 2021 psychological drama, The Lost Daughter, by director Maggie Gyllenhaal. To unpack this film, I am accompanied by the host of the Conversation Art Podcast, Michael Shaw. Michael, welcome to Syndicates. Thank you so much for having me, Armand. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad that you're on. And so before we get into the film itself, let's talk a bit about your podcast, The Conversation Art Podcast. So could you explain to our listeners more about uh, your show? Absolutely. And that's a mouthful, by the way, <laughs> the way you said it. Um, so The Conversation is a podcast that is focused on the contemporary art world. My tagline, if you will, or the line that I use at the beginning of the show is, the conversation, a podcast that goes behind the scenes and between the lines of the contemporary art worlds. And what that means is it honors the fact that there is not just one art world. There are multiple big and little art worlds. Um, I, I, I tend to focus on, the, on the, the, the more high art world, I guess you could say. But I have conversations with people in the art world, not just artists, although artists are definitely, I would say, the main draw for the main for the for the biggest part of the listenership um but i i also have writers writers are i find to be some of the most interesting and um uh informative people to talk to you know because the way that i used to describe it is with a writer with an artist you're talking about their world with a writer you're talking about the whole world so mm. yeah i like that approach because like yeah because like 
you know, just side tangent on authors, like they truly develop their own world within their novels or their short stories or screenplays. Um, but your main, you know, the bread and butter of your show are the artists. And I took a look at your resume and you have an MFA and Correct. congratulations. <laughs> and <laughs> well, you know what they say about MFAs, Armand, don't you? With, uh, with an, an MFA and uh, what is it? Two seventy five now. You you can get a ride on the subway. So oh wow, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh wow, that's that's really crazy. So <laughs> when what really drew me into your show because I took a listen to some of your podcasts, uh, mostly the ones with artists. Uh, mm -hmm. What drew me in was not only your name but also personified that by listening to your conversations with these artists, um, high art, uh, I would say, and no, actually fine art. Um, what's interesting is the way you approach art as a conversation. And when I was going to college, uh, got my bachelor's, that's how I was taught to approach art. Um, so was that a main inspiration for your podcast? Um, you know, your schooling, your upbringing with art to view art as a conversation piece? No, it was inspired by another podcast, um, honestly. Um, it was inspired by a very well-known podcast uh, it, it, back in 2011 uh, is when I, you know, sort of hatched the idea of doing the show. Um, actually, I kind of came through the back door. You know, I, I don't know how many podcasters, and there are a lot out there now, as you well know, uh, right. but how many of them are working on something and say, you know, they're working on various platforms, let's say, or various projects. And they go, all right, you know what? I think a podcast would good, be a good way to disseminate this aspect of my, you know, my, my, uh, or my, pro my various projects. For me, it was, I want to do a podcast. What should I make my podcast about? <laughs> <laughs> and so it was WTF. I'll, I'll just I'll just share that. And 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 I have some reservations about that because of where I think the podcast that podcast has gone. But in any case, it was a comedian talking with other comedians. So I thought, okay, I'll try doing a podcast of an artist talking with other artists. And so originally it was called the Conversation an Artist Podcast. Um, like only artists. We're only going to have artists. And in fact. You know, even though you listen to artists and you, you know, and you, as you called it, the bread and butter of the show as artists, you know, there have been some really great guests who have been not artists, like writers, like I said, um, cultural critics, uh, maybe a gallerist or two. Um, but yeah, certainly some of the best guests have also been artists. It's true. So overall, I would say creatives is everybody that goes well, on your show. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, there are some podcasts. There's, there is another art podcast. I actually had that podcaster on my show not long ago. And he has people kind of really across the spectrum of the arts. Like he has cinematographers, you know, um, uh, I want to say thinkers, you know, et cetera. I, I would say I, I keep it pretty much under the umbrella of the art world. So, Very you nice. know, they are creatives, but they are creatives within some version of the art world. Mm, I love it. I mean, you've been doing this for over 10 years. Uh, congratulations. Uh, but I think you're, you're onto something because when I started this podcast, 
Uh, little did I know that it would consume my life like this. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. But what I really found out doing this, I was like, okay, like I'm a creative uh, in the marketing world right now. And so who do I have on? My friends, my colleagues, and they're all creatives. So like that kind of like expanded out and it just turned into like me inviting creatives, talking about film and cinema. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I mean, you're onto something. Uh, just have talk you, about have, what you enjoy. Have you had film industry people on your show, Armand, yet? Yes. yes. Okay, I've good. Had talented so filmmakers and actors. And right. So that's, that's got to be a much different experience than talking with your, you know, your more personal community and what have you, right? Yes. Uh, there are some overlaps um, with like, so I'm a designer uh, by trade. Um, so I do have that visual literacy. Um, but when it comes to cinema and film, um, there are some overlaps with the principles of design. Um, but it's a little bit different because like they take those foundational pieces and like translate it to film. And it's very intriguing how they view that medium versus how I view the medium. Sure. Type Got of thing. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So from there, let's get into the film that we saw, The yes. Lost Daughter. Yes. So how did you first discover The Lost Daughter since you recommended it to me? I didn't hear about this prior, but how did you find out about this film? Okay. How did you not hear about this film, Armand? No, um, a lot of people, a lot of people have been talking about it, I think, and, but I, I, but I can easily see how it would also get lost in the Netflix iverse, you know, which is where yes. the platform is on. So I actually, so first of all, I saw it for the second time, uh, this past week over a couple of sessions because I wanted to be prepared. I hadn't seen it since I think the holidays and I discovered it because I was looking for films to watch, you know, doing a lot of film watching around the holidays. And I came upon Vulture's top films of 2021 list. And Lost Daughter was, I think, at the top or near the top of it. And so when I saw that it was coming up on Netflix, like shortly, I was like, oh, we're going to watch that, my girlfriend and I. So indeed, we did. And now I am on your podcast to <laughs> complain about this film. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Cause like when you pitched it to me, you're like, have you seen this movie? I have some very strong opinions about it. And I, I had no clue what this movie was. So I just did a quick Google search and I saw the cast and I was so impressed by it. Cause I was like, Oh my God, you have all these awesome people. You got Olivia Coleman, you got Dakota Johnson, Ed Harris, Paul Mescal. And I was like, okay, I'm sold. Because I know those actors are going to deliver a good performance, you know, based on their previous uh, filmography. So I went into it blind. I think I watched like the trailer and I was like, I don't really understand what's happening, but I'm, I'm going to watch it anyways because I'm sold on Olivia Coleman and company. Um, and I will say after watching it, I have mixed feelings about it. Mm-hmm. Very mixed feelings. Mm-hmm. It's like it's a mixed bag. Which can yeah. be a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hold that thought, Armand. Who, who is Paul Mescal? Because he is um, among the cast members who I do not recognize. He is a relatively up-and-coming actor. Um, he was 
made famous by his series Normal People, uh, which was a BBC. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course, of course. He play he he plays um, Will. Of course. Sorry about that. Yes, yes. yes. He's it. the 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 what would you call it? The hotel bellhop, I guess. Or he 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 is like the the sort of activ the beach activities coordinator. How about that? That's a better way to put it. And yes, I <laughs> he just and he I, just pumped up his uh, resume right there. Well, well, actually, speaking of his resume, uh, and and so, let me know if I'm interjecting too much or too early. But I have seen Normal People, and that is a great show, by the way. And I Absolutely. I actually read the book, and I, it was an excellent ad adaptation of the book. Secondly, I have heard this is getting into gossip, so you know, stop me if it's too gossipy. But Dude. I heard on another podcast, Paul Mescal referred to as Mr. Phoebe Bridgers. So apparently, he is engaged to a very big singer. Oh boy, this is turning into TMZ. I have no idea. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I didn't that. know any of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay. That's what I'm all about. He's the making moves. Space for gossip. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay, I love it. But yeah, like seeing him, I was like, oh, because I love normal people. I thought he played, you know, one of the great uh, performance pieces opposite of uh, the girl, I forget her name. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he was great in normal people. But um, so yeah, moving from the ensemble cast, um, this is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut. And I don't know how this flew under my radar, but like I had no idea that she even transitioned to be a director. I've noticed a lot of actors are becoming directors right now. Mm. And I don't know if this was a very strong film to start off with. But it was still good in a way. You know, how did you feel about Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut? Well, I think I, th I would say I would insert the word that you came close to but did not say, which is ambitious. It was definitely mm. a, a very ambitious debut. Yeah. You know, if, if you want to, I don't know if we're talking about context already, if it's too early to do that, but. Um, I will say that I th I thought the show uh, about Times Square in the 70s that she was on, on HBO, which is the name I don't remember right now. That um, So James Franco and Maggie Gyllenhaal, among, among many other people, are, are, were on this show about 42nd Street on uh, in the 70s, which was on, okay. on, ran on HBO. Anyway, all that said, I feel like she might have directed an episode or two of that show. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. I have that impression because um, she she seemed to be pretty involved with the show. Let's say, I think for a, a, a director, regardless of whether you're an actor or not, I think it mm -hmm. was a, I think it was a, a a solid first effort. But that said, I don't know what we're comparing it to. Like, you know. Or what are you know what if if we take some great filmmakers, what were their film de film debuts like? Right, who comes to mind? So specifically, what I'm thinking of right now is not so like say like you have like your for example Spielberg's or or Nolan's or even Villeneuve's where they're going into the industry with a director's mindset in mind. It's like right. I want to right. create worlds. I want to right. create films um, with Maggie Gyllenhaal. Um, I don't know if she ever had that ambitions uh, to be a director, but she cut her teeth on being an actress 
being an actor. Yeah. And, you know, I've had uh, actors on who are also directors. Um, and so you have that overlap. But what's surprising with Maggie Gyllenhaal is I didn't expect her to create a film, especially now. Uh, it definitely seemed to come out of nowhere. I don't know what sparked it. But um, like you said, it was an ambitious first attempt. Um, hot out of the gates. Like she, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get off the fence too early, uh, whether or not she bit off more than she can chew with this film. But you can see that she was really trying, you know, to like make this be like an Oscar worthy film. I would right. Say. Right. Exactly. Well, two, two, two big things come to mind. First of all, I would push back against the fact that she came out of nowhere or left field because her parents, I believe, are both screenwriters. So she grew up in the industry. So for her to make a turn to, to, to turn to directing is actually quite un, unremarkable or unsurprising. Um, it is definitely, though, her uh, power and leverage in the industry that made getting Olivia Coleman as the lead in her first film happen. You know, that would not happen with, with anybody who was not famous slash powerful. Right. So that, that is definitely noteworthy. Um, and again, before we get maybe too into the weeds, I will say that um, for those who might say Olivia Coleman is amazing. I love her. You know, people have you have you I'm sure you've heard on your show or if not elsewhere, people say that about the lead in a film as if that means the film's great. You know, yes, Olivia Philman was great in this film. That does not yeah. mean it was a great film. Those are two different things. Yes, I can think of many films where it's like, you know, they're they're working with the material that they're given. And, you know, even though they gave like an A plus effort, for example, Olivia Coleman, she's been orbiting my life in the things that I've seen since I was very young, like from her comedic career. And then she transitioned to dramatic and now she's like an Oscar winner, which is insane. Um, so like seeing her be the star of this movie, like on full display, she did a fantastic job. Oh, my God. Like she was the shining gem of this movie but just because you know she's in it does it elevate the work because she's in it or is the work actually elevated because she's a part of it you know what i mean so yeah it's definitely one of those cases too yeah i think it's the latter answer if in case that wasn't a rhetorical question <laughs> i think it was the latter <laughs> yeah all right so we've been dancing around this movie so let's fully get into it with a segment that many listeners know as the elevator pitch. Please stand clear of the closing. So for those that don't know, if you're selling a movie on a friend, you really only have 60 seconds to do so. So here on Seneca today, we're going to simulate that by putting one minute on the clock. Michael, I need you to summarize The Lost Daughter within one minute while avoiding major spoilers. Are you ready? I'm ready. I feel like I'm on a game show, but um, I think I'm ready. Okay, we're going to start in three, two, one, go. The Lost Daughter is about a woman 
who is a professor of comparative literature on holiday on a Greek island. It's called Kiobli, by the way. I didn't get that in the first listen, but in the second, <laughs> second, first watch, but I got it in the second. And she is encounters a few different types of people. One in particular is this ex- large extended family that show up on the beach one day and are staying in the town. She has a lot of uh, tense interactions with the family for various reasons, particularly with a woman who, a young woman who has a young daughter who is a lot of work uh, as a daughter. And it takes her, the main character, Lita, back to her past in which she was a mother, a young mother of young children and the struggles that she had. Um, There are also some sort of side plots with Ed Harris, who is the caretaker of the place she's staying, and with Will, the guy who we mentioned earlier, who is, uh, you know, kind of taking care of people at the beach. There are a couple little inner plots with them. But basically, it's about her journey on this island with these people, and particularly this family, and then her journey back in time and all of the challenges she had as a mother. How's I that? love it. Thank you so much. That was... Almost a two-minute elevator pitch, but I didn't want to stop you because you're summarizing the movie so well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on with this movie, and going into it, I didn't expect that. I expected, you know, based on the trailer, uh, Olivia Coleman on vacation, getting angry at, like, younger people on the beach, her private beach at this uh, resort or hotel. Uh, but it's more than that. Um, it actually gets extremely deep uh, into like motherhood and what that means to be like a mother. And, you know, like as we age, we become different people. And uh, and when I was watching it, like I'm going to be upfront with you. When I was watching it for the first time, I didn't know that there are flashback uh, sequences on like who that pertained to, because I thought there were two different people. Specifically, I thought the flashback sequences were talking about uh, Lita's mother instead of oh, Lita. Yes. That must have been very confusing for you. <laughs> I was, I was pretty confused. Yeah. Yeah. I figured it out about halfway through. I was like, okay. oh, wait a minute. That's her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I was watching a different movie, apparently. Interesting. Interesting. Well, the first lesson here, Armand, is don't judge a book by its cover, as in, don't expect the trailer to tell you what the movie is going to be like. Um, yeah. Anyway, where, where are you going to go next? Uh, the point is, this movie's so deep, and I didn't expect it to be deep. Uh, I why, mean, why did, wait, let me push back against you here. Why, why did you not that? expect it to be deep? I mean, you've got Olivia Coleman, right? She's been doing quite a bit of independent uh, you know, art films, whatever you want to call them, right? So... Wouldn't you expect that she would only take something that is, you know, uh, of a certain depth? I guess let me rephrase that. I didn't, I didn't expect the territory that this movie would traverse. And I was pleasantly surprised because Mm -hmm. I love movies that make you think that leave you with something. Mm -hmm. And with the lost daughter, it does leave you with something to ponder about. After okay. the credits roll. Okay. Um, so with Olivia Coleman's character, I thought 
is such a complex character to display on film. And I think the use of flashback sequences help personify that because like when you write a character, you know, us humans, us normal humans, we're extremely complex and very nuanced. Uh, but when you show a character on screen, you know, you essentially take that human person and then you make it into like a character of sorts where like you simplify it into like, you know, pretty core details, like whatever those attributes are. Uh, but with uh, Lita's journey from a young mother to, you know, an aged woman, you see an that an aged woman. That's a little harsh. Let's, let's call her a middle-aged woman. Is that what you meant? I guess uh, let's call her uh, empty nester because that's what she is. That, that works. That well done. So we go from a young mother to an empty nester and you see that transformation. You see that uh, growth with this character on screen with the use of the flashbacks. So I guess like, so we're seeing this uh, story unfold through Lita's eyes and we have the inclusion, like you said in your pitch with this very large family that is vacationing at the same time she is. Um, so mm -hmm. she's finding a reprieve from work. Or mm -hmm. she's working on a whether it's a personal project or something uh, with the the backdrop of the Greek Isles, and unfortunately, this normal family is also vacationing. Of course, they're loud, they're disruptive. You can't really control people that also vacation too. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting with this family is Dakota Johnson's character Nina. I think she echoes Lita in many ways. Right, right. Yeah. Well, what I did like about the film was I there were a lot of great moments. You know, you talk about nuance and subtlety. Um, and there, I feel like, you know, I, I appreciate that's that's really my kind of film is ones ones that that are that are quiet that, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty contra Hollywood films. I don't know if you knew that about me or if you could have guessed, but in any case, um, I do like nuance and subtlety and to speak of Nina, who is sort of the, the most central character amongst this found this large, ex this extended family that, that Lita encounter encounters on the beach of this Greek Island where she's staying. Um, she and Lita have, a very pe peculiar dynamic, you know, that is kind of um, what uh, mentor-ish or motherly, um, and and also I don't know, uh, friendly and very intimate in a, you know in a very short amount of time because of their sort of respective connections with their own daughters or their own children. You know, Lita's obviously in the past. Nina's with Elena, I believe her daughter's name is, in the present, who's like, what, five? Um, Very. Yeah, I don't know if we want to start getting into spoilers now, but the, the big connection that they have is around this doll that Nina's daughter, Elena, loses. And it turns out that Lita took it, basically. And, and that becomes this sort of through line of a lot of the film. Um, I guess I, I, I guess I'm not going to get sort of organically back to your question about Lita and what she was like as a, as a personality. I mean, again, what was one of the better things about the film is 
how they how Maggie Gyllenhaal um, and Olivia Coleman as the main character sort of figure out how to have her live in the world, have have Lita live in the world. She's uh, on one hand having a, you know trying to have a good here. Here's an interesting actually, by the way, um, perspective on. I hope I should say this is an interesting perspective on, on what's happening. Lita is on vacation, but she's struggling to have a good time. It, right. it feels a lot of the time like people, other people, like including this ex- large extended family, but others in town, uh, to some extent, this guy played by Ed Harris, uh, Lyle, are kind of in weird and subtle ways kind of conspiring against her to have a good time, you know, for various weird personality conflict reasons. Um, but all that said, her acting, you know, as you would expect, if you've seen Olivia Coleman in recent film films over the last few years, you know, is great, you know, and this time she's not playing some over the top character. She's playing, you know, somebody more in the realm of typical slash normal. And what you're getting are these great, responses to the other characters she's interacting with, you know, with, uh, sort of, um, let's see, how do I want to put this, uh, careful approval, careful, um, appeasement. Uh, she's in, in one very particular moment, she is, uh, rejecting, a request to use her beach chair and have her move somewhere else. And her, the, the rea- you know, the look on her face in the opposition that she's given afterwards, it's not over the top. She doesn't act in shock, but she's clearly kind of a little freaked out. And these are all examples of things that we as the viewers, I think, can really identify with. So that, I say, those parts of the film to me, I think are, are probably the most successful. Right. Um, so like, you know, the, the driving force, well, the, the inciting incident with this film is, so she's on the beach. She's minding her own business. Family comes and we've all been there. I feel like we've all been there mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you're just, mm-hmm. you're just there. And then someone asks you to move, you know, <laughs> because like their family's so huge, you know, it makes sense. You know, you don't want to, I don't want to divide my family. If you could just move over a chair or two, that would be fine. Um, personally, I would probably just move. I mean, if it's not that big of an inconvenience, I'll say, okay, I get it. Um, but also good on her because she stood her ground and was like, no, I'm not going to move. And that caused so much tension between, um, this family and her, because it's like, I mean, that's kind of a dick move to like not move, but also who are you to ask her to move? It's like, she was there first. I think it's a dick move to ask somebody to move from their seat anywhere. Right. It's it's a very awkward situation and it's like, it's, it's unnecessary drama. It's just like, you know, just go somewhere else. Um, as in the family go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, tensions rose and I really love that scene because like you really see, uh, Olivia Coleman's acting front and center and it's not even like over the top, it's subdued. Um, and then with this uh, family, which I feel like they're from, they're from Jersey, right? From the East coast. That's a really good question, actually. Um, 
And and by the way, before we before we figure out what the answer to that is, I, I thought that was a little that was so one of my one of the consistent issues I have with the film is the lack of realism, you know, verisimilitude, realism. There's a lot of verisimilitude in the interactions amongst the characters, which I which I like I said, I appreciate. But but so Lita, who is from the Boston area, from Cambridge, as she says, um, by the way, that probably is a code for she works at Harvard because she's a, she's a professor. But in any case, she's on this Greek island that I haven't even heard of. And this whole large extended family shows up and they're from the U.S., right, from the Northeast. It, it just yeah. seems like, you know, it works for the plot. But yeah, so they're, they're from the New York area, I would say, because they struck me as a little... Guido-ish? Did they strike you that way? Um, yes. They definitely okay. seem like they're from the Jersey Shore. Okay. And I've okay. known people like that too. Like it's okay. like, okay. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I'm not gonna assume anything, but no offense to Jersey Shore listeners. Why not just go to Florida? You know, yeah. it's closer. Yeah. Yeah, and by but the way. They- yeah. By the way, sorry, sorry, Armand. Um, you you rem, you remind you're reminding me of this particular moment when Lita. So Lita's talking with Will, and Will is. I think this is when this is, and Will is telling her about Nina's husband. And I yeah. can't quite make out all of what they're saying, but he he says he's invest got investments in Kalamata, which I assume has to do with Kalamata olives, of course, but. What does that mean? What does this guy do? I mean, it's like, how would a Jersey? I mean, I guess Jersey Shore guys are 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 investment bankers or what have you, right? So, I Mm -hmm. mean, how did you how did you interpret that part of the plot? Um, So, as the movie progresses, we find out more and more about this family, um, just like with little 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 sprinkles of exposition, and until we see Nina's husband actually appear in the film, Um, but Nina's husband seems well to do. Like he seems, I don't know what he does, but he definitely seems like he either runs a successful business or he's a part uh, of a successful business. Um, so I don't know if he makes like olive oil, you know, from your uh, deciphering with the olives. Um, but obviously this dude has money, enough money to either pay for a good part of this vacation or maybe this is like a special trip because like it was nina's mother's birthday so it could have been like oh her birthday trip. no 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 her her i think it was her sister-in-law or aunt or something oh okay yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. she wasn't that much older than Nina. i mean well we don't know how old Nina is so i shouldn't say that the All woman right. the woman who came up and asked uh lita for her chair is who we're right. talking about. And she said that she it was her birthday and she was 42. So she's obviously okay. not that old. In any case, okay. continue. It's very interesting because like with Nina in particular, and I want to get into this, um, her marriage, her situation being a mother, echoes Lita's uh, character with her marriage, her motherhood. Right as this film progresses and it's kind of like this slow reveal because like we don't really know the context of anything uh when she was told to move um tensions rose dissipated when nina came in was like hey you know it's fine i'm sorry and then everyone made up 
you know, they're having a birthday party on the beach. Um, but there is some like Lita's character is pretty awkward and that's fine. That's just who she is. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, but Nina and Lita are like getting sort of close. And then the biggest thing happened right in the beginning of the film is Nina's daughter uh, goes missing. Yeah. And that kind of propels the rest of the film because like, and I thought that was going to be the whole plot of the movie, but it was quickly resolved. And then the actual plot of the movie re- revolves around Nina's daughter's doll, which goes missing. So it's like, it's not the lost daughter of Nina. That's the central focus. But I mean, this is like super metaphorical, but also the lost daughter of the daughter, the doll, because like, why do girls, little girls typically play with dolls? It's the mimic mother, you know? Um, so yeah, kid and, and, lost and this time, sorry, sorry to interrupt it, Armand, but this time, the second time around, I, I hadn't quite caught, I think the first time that, uh, the younger Lita, you know, in the flashbacks at one point is, has lost one of her two daughters on the beach and is calling around panicked. So, and she, so it was clearly like, this is the lost daughter as well. You know, right. this is the through line, you know, I can't find my daughter. And, and I'm just going to s- say, since we're sort of into the spoiling territory that Do um, kind of, kind of, you know, piggybacking off what you were saying that Lita takes the doll, right. And, and rather than return it, holds on to it. And, and this features largely at the end of the film, but I'm not, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of articulate and I can't, I still can't why. And this is a little bit, you know, like what the symbolism is around her whole and, and the meaning is for her holding on this doll. It's like, she's holding on. So by her holding Nina's daughter's doll, She's like sort of trying to get back what she lost when she was a younger mother. Is that what's happening? You know, I mean, um, and, and, and by the way, just one other thing I want to say real, really quickly. This is one of the examples in which I feel that Maggie Gyllenhaal, the director, is being sort of expressionistic, which just is, is to say sort of throwing out a trope uh you know in the story that doesn't have much clarity nor will it nor does it need to according to the director but i feel it kind of needs to hmm. hmm i like the way you put that oh I good really do i'm glad to hear that <laughs> <laughs> so let's attempt to unpack the symbolism behind the stall because in doing so we're going to traverse the rest of the film in doing so because this is the central uh, piece of this film is this missing doll so like you said lita you know when nina's daughter went missing she also misplaced her doll and in searching for the doll olivia coleman finds it and then keeps it so i think you're on to something when you said like she's trying to either harken back or try to somehow reconcile um how she was when she was a young mother. And I think that's key when looking at this doll, because like the way she even interacts with the doll, like she's like, she's cleaning it. She's caressing it. Um, she's like really holding on to it. And 
when you go into the flashback sequences, because like now, modern day, she obviously something happened to her daughters. We don't really know. It's kind of implied like something tragic happened, but in actuality, she pushed her kids away. And I thought that was tragic in its own way, but also like heartbreaking as well. Yeah. On this, you would think so, but I did not get that from the film. I did not get, I did not feel neither empathy for these kids who were being pushed away by their mother. I just, it just didn't come for me, nor did I feel any, not that we're necessarily supposed to. I mean, this is clearly an anti-hero of sorts, Mm -hmm. Lita. Yeah. I did not feel any empathy towards Lita particularly, except, except in some of these scenes, right. That, you know, that I mentioned earlier that there are, it's like, there are a lot of mini movies within the movie. You could say like some of these scenes are like these almost short films, not really, but anyway, so one particular scene that, that I think is, is worth mentioning is one in which she is having dinner at the bar right by the hotel. Uh, sorry, right by the, 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 um, the suite that she is staying in, the house that she's staying in that Ed Harris's character, Lyle is the caretaker for. And Lyle is at the bar and comes over and chats with her and is seems kind of flirtatious and she and then but but then she kind of pushes him away and says okay um is it okay if i finish my dinner and then and and he gets it and he goes back to his card table with his buddies but then lita goes over to the table bends over next to him and says something like bellissimo giaco bellissimo which means, mm-hmm. I guess, something like hot dude, maybe, or something like that. And it totally lands flat, and she immediately gets up and awkwardly walks away. Like that, right? That I mean, that leaves was the, like... Leaves the restaurants. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's like, sorry, sorry, sorry. And then she walks away. I mean, that was like, you know, beautiful if you're talking about humanity awkwardness humiliation you know and so on i felt that i felt that maggie gyllenhaal has clearly nailed you know um as i call it like about all you know starting with probably well before but certainly apexing with curb your enthusiasm but then it's like it's all over the place in tv and in movies i call it torture porn you know we're basically the job of the director or the writer is to make the viewer feel super squirmy and uncomfortable. So Maggie has clearly nailed that in this film. Absolutely. Like not a lot of people can pull that off because it's like, it's so. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Discomforting to see that because like, you know, when you watch a film, it's kind of like the idealized version of reality. But like when you see those moments, it's like, oh, that is reality. And we all can relate to that because like either... We have been there. Someone we know has been there. Cause like I've, I've been there on both ends. It's like I was, I was the awkward one. And also I was Mm -hmm. next to the awkward one. So I get Mm -hmm. secondhand embarrassment that I'm with this person. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Oh, and let me, sorry, one more thing that I want to, that you reminded me of Armand that I think is, is really important to, uh, to point out. And that is that I am not a parent. So keep in mind listeners that and Maggie, if you're listening, um, <laughs> that I, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and the God uh, kind of gesture, um, that I, I do not have parenting skills. I have childcare skills and, and experience, but I do not have parenting experience. And so you can certainly take my comments about Lita's experience and the, you know, Anina's experience and the younger Lita's experience with the big grain of salt. That's all I wanted to say. Right. Sorry. No, it's fine because um, that is your perspective. Um, I'm not a parent either. Um, mm-hmm. But so going back to what I said earlier with like this, I described it as heartbreaking and I didn't feel that towards Lita um, because she was the, I guess, the aggressor in that situation. Um, I felt bad for the kids because it's, that sucks to have like, so like, Let's talk about motherhood for a second. So when you're young, you view your mother as that's your mother. Like that's, that is, you only have one mother. Uh, But as you age, you realize like, wait a minute, my mom is just a person, you know, no different than anyone else. But what makes her different is like, she embodies the spirit of the mother, like this archetypal figure of motherhood Um, with Lita in this film. I would not say she represented that uh, figure, that archetypal figure very well, because even though there were tender moments with her kids where she truly, you know, displayed her love, um, she, the way she approached conflict wasn't the most constructive or healthy uh, when like raising a kid, like, of course you need to be firm with your kid, but like, I felt like she was, way too like rough in every regard towards her kids to the point where I was like, does she even love her kids by the way she's acting? And it seems like um, she doesn't. And I think that leads into later on in the story, why she becomes separated with her kids. So to say, would you like to unpack that a little bit? I, I, I appreciate your observations about, her and her kids, because I didn't quite think of it that way. Uh, I guess I thought, I I felt actually at times, I have to say that one of her kids, the older one, I guess, was kind of being a little oppressive 
um, you know, because she just kept insisting and she, and, and then she slapped mommy and, you know, and, and stuff like that. But, um, but that said, yeah, I could see that she was, especially now that I'm talking with you more, you know, in, in, in greater depth about it, that she was maybe not suited to be a mother or, or certainly not ready to be a mother. Um, right. They show quite a, they show a decent amount of her husband, um, particularly as she's about to leave the kids for a few years. Um, clearly based on, you know, what the director, what the, and the story is telling us is, is in a, in a tricky situation, you know, and a lot is being put upon him. But I, but I do also remember though, a scene in which they're both trying to get their work done. And he's, but he's on a call and she is, um, doing some transcription or, you know, translation, which she's a translator as part of her work. Um, so she is obviously, you know, if you're to weigh it out, she is, has the lower priority task, right? Because it can be done later. And he's trying to get her to take care of the, you know, the girls and she's like avoiding it and she's staying on her thing. And then finally she goes, um, yeah. So overall, uh, I, I didn't feel that she was being quite as neglectful in those moments as, as you did. But I mean, big picture wise, of course, I mean, she, she left, but again, right. to go back, to go back, she, she, just to be clear to listeners who, you know, in case you haven't seen it, she left for three years. Um, it's not clear exactly what she was doing, but she was having an affair, uh, you know, before she left. So um, the, the final thing I'll say is just that, like I said before, I was not made to feel much empathy towards the children, the way that the story was told. Right. Um, and I think that is a hallmark of the directing style for this film, because not only was Olivia Coleman's character, her, her acting as subdued and minimal, but also... I guess like the whole approach with fleshing out these characters was, was very subdued and more natural. Um, so you had to almost make your own inferences. And like you said, with the whole impressionist style of filmmaking, where it's kind of like these broad strokes and it's kind of like, you need to put the meaning onto it type of thing. Yeah. And I think that's how it was with Lita's family in these flashback sequences was either you're making your own judgments or even you're putting your own life experiences or perspective into these characters and then you could like form it from there. That's the way I interpreted um these sequences and also the film as a whole in some regards um because it's so minimal and up to interpretation with everything. So like, that shocked me when she left her family, she left her family. She left her husband. She left her kids for three years. Like I understand being ambitious and like going after your career, but also to be unhappy like that. And just, to, yeah, just to leave, um, to put into context, like she, got i guess like a sitter uh so she can go to this event where she can get her paper included into was it like a study of sorts 
Well, yeah, let's just say that that event was like a symposium or a conference. It was a conference yeah. of other comparative literature translators. Okay. Yeah. Where, yeah, where so she she's... where she met the guy she had sorry where she had the affair with. But go ahead. Right. Yeah, like she is enamored by this uh, professor, uh, researcher, and I don't know if it was to like get ahead or she was really she really liked him, respected him more than her husband. I don't know. I think it was um, a lot. But go ahead. Probably, yeah, probably, um, because her husband was pretty laid back in all regards and all the scenes I've seen him in. Like he just in a bad way, there. Or a good way. In a bad way, it could be both. You okay. can be like being laid back is generally a a good quality to have, but like mm-hmm. it seems like when parenting their kids, he wasn't really. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't present enough for her. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Clearly there was miscommunication on both their ends and they didn't make this uh, parenting unit work as to why she left. Um, but she was unfaithful to her husband. Uh, she slept with the the main guy at the symposium. And I say all that because it mirrors Nina's story because like as the story I- progresses, it is revealed that she is not happy with her husband. Uh, she has her reasons and she starts hooking up with Will, the coordinator at the, at the hotel. Um, so how did you feel about their stories and how they interwove in this mm-hmm. film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, first I, I wanted to, this is, this is really surfacy or, or gossipy, but I, but I feel like it needs to be said. We, we, you talk, you, we alluded to the professor who she connects with at the conference, who, by the way, is very complimentary of her work. And it seems sincere, flirtatious, but also sincere. Anyway, that actor is Peter Sarsgaard, who I think you know is, correct me if I'm wrong, Maggie Gyllenhaal's husband. That right? is correct. Yes. yes. Okay. All right. So just, just so we get that out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I that thought was real chemistry well, on screen. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I actually thought that his, he was one of the best. I thought he was one of the best cast people, surprisingly in the film. I thought he really nailed, I mean, I'm not in academia and I don't, so I don't know professor types well, but of what I do know, I felt like he really kind of nailed that type, you know, like sort of a really well-respected kind of rock star type professor. I thought he really nailed that. Their their affair was very uh, visceral and, and and passionate to the point of again expressionism and over the I think in this case over the topness. At one point, they're basically all but having intercourse on the stairs of where this. I thought that was very interesting. Place. Yeah, interesting slash, yeah, I'm not going to buy that <laughs> for me, for me anyway. <laughs> uh, um, but then to get, I, I think you made a really interesting uh, analogy or a comparison over to Nina and Will. I wasn't totally clear that Nina was unhappy with her marriage. I mean, clearly she wa- was interested in having extramarital sex, but... She did. The only line that I remember her saying about her husband is, "He's absolutely crazy about me." Right. So yeah, 
that is that's a little vague, right? I mean, in in a, in a good way, I guess, right? It's like, well, I am, you know, inc- absolutely adored, so I should stay in this marriage, right? But it's kind of like ellipses, dot dot dot. But right. am I happy? And we don't really get that because clearly it's a very, I mean, this is a very patriarchal clan, right? And this guy, mm, yeah. this dude, is extra hardcore, you know macho machismo take care of the family kind of guy italian <laughs> if he is italian presumably presume um by the way and 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 let me say too one other thing um i have actually not this is actually i think the first film that i've seen dakota johnson in i know that she is in it and, it, and it's so clear to, it's so clear to me in seeing her eyes in this movie how she is the daughter of melanie griffith and don johnson right who have both very characteristic eyes her eyes are like you know are are very impressive and unusual um she is she's really good in this role too in that she is both weirdly a mixture of weirdly loving maternal and kind of psycho all together (laughs) yeah she embodies like that mama bear um mm. archetype where it's mm-hmm. like she cares about her cub to the point where she will destroy anybody who gets in her way um and that's personified with the losing of not only her daughter but also her daughter's toy right which means the world to her daughter so it's right. like to the point where you know like i think like a typical parent would be like oh this sucks but you know We'll 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 replace it. We'll buy you another one, but instead of that, she prints out thirty flyers for this doll, like reward, like it was like a lost pet or something, or a lost per, a lost child. Yeah, um, I get it. You want to take care yep. of your family, yep. um, but going with her husband, I felt like there was some, like you said, it, it's up to interpretation. I felt like there was some sort of animosity because, like. Um, there was a scene near the end of the movie, um, right before Nina's husband appeared because like they were there while he wasn't. And when the news broke that her husband's coming to the vacation early, she was like, shit, he wasn't supposed to come yet. So I thought that was a very interesting character moment because like, clearly we don't really know it's not spelled out. But clearly there's some something's going on where she's unhappy. Like there's like, you know, you should be equal in your love for each other. Yep. And it was not equal. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's that's a very good point. That was definitely happening. Um, yeah. And, you know, this is a segue to to another slightly uh, a tangential point, which is this this extended family, which basically includes. uh Nina and her daughter and her husband. Uh, Nina's, I don't know, sister-in-law, the the woman who had the birthday. Then there's this guy who's kind of this older guy with a beard who is kind of referred to as like the protector or something like that, the caretaker, caregiver. I can't remember what his title was, but it was like he's he's almost like their bouncer or something, even though he's not that right. guy. Um, and then there are like a couple of I don't know cousins. They they always everybody else pretty much seems kind of. Uh, nameless and faceless, but there's something so peculiar about that family, particularly later in the film, where they take on this really ominous 
characteristic, which is which is pretty interesting. Right. Another, I think, another successful uh, aspect of the film that that Maggie Gyllenhaal pulled off, um, but a little bit also confusing as well. Uh, and maybe that's okay, but again, it falls under this expressionistic category. So, to be specific. Towards near, nearing the sort of latter quarter of the film, the final act, let's say, um, Nina, and again, we're sort of reaching this crescendo of, of like, we can't find the doll. Where is the doll? Uh, Lita is sitting at, on her typical beach chair at the beach, and you get this pan around the beach and all the different, mem- you know, everybody from Nina to the sister-in-law to the husband and, you know, and the guy and all, you know, they're all kind of like whispering to each other and looking over at Lita. Like, why are they doing it? Or is it because they know, or they strongly suspect that she has the doll? That seems would make right. sense, except for the fact that when Nina and Lita have that final confrontation, Nina is surprised that Lita has the doll. So I'm not sure how to sort of make, heads or tails or odds and ends of all of that. But I'd say on one hand, it's really effective and an interesting way of creating an air of ominousness, ominous, ominousness. But at the same time, I'm not sure it ends like a lot of things in the film. I'm not sure it ends up coming to some kind of uh, logical kind of closure. So here's, Here's my theory. Uh, okay. I was listening to, I kind of pieced it together. I was like, wait, it could be this. Um, because throughout this entire film, it's through Lita's perspective on life. Because we're following her. And this could be how she interprets the world. Um, we right. don't really know if she has like a personality disorder or you know what's really going on. But... With all of these social interactions, she's awkward. Something's going on. Either right. she's misinterpreting what's going on right. or she is defensive. Um, but in that scene that you're talking about on the beach where she's panning, she's looking around, and it seems like everyone's whispering, it could be how she feels because right. like she's holding on to something that they're looking for. So inherently, right. as this movie progresses, there's tension because there's unresolved conflict. Right. Like they're looking for the doll. She has it. She can get caught at any moment and she could easily play it off. Be like, oh, I just found it. I was cleaning it up. Here you right. go. Right. Um, but she doesn't do that. And like every single scene where I see her with the doll, I'm like, why do you have the doll? Why don't you just give it back? Like, why are you holding on to it? Like, I understand you're trying to like rekindle, like, or like look fondly on the past or even rewrite your own past uh, by taking care of this doll. Um, but it comes to a crescendo when I don't like Nina wanted to use Lita's apartment to be with Will uh, in secret. And Lita, of course, uh, declines. Uh, she doesn't want her place being used like that for whatever reason. And Nina goes, I forget the context, but she goes to meet with Lita in her place. And like, that's when she finds the doll. And Olivia Coleman's character, Lita, says the weirdest response. And like, when she said it, I was like, 
why on earth would you say that? Why would you say that? You know what I'm talking about? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say, just going back to what you were saying earlier, I, I really like the interpretation on the beach that the way we as viewers are seeing the whole family in their separate places on the beach whispering about Lita as being Lita's perception, like, you know, that, it, that, that this is the manifestation of what Lita's feeling, right? Even though visually right. it's, it's, it's something very different. I, so I want to, I want to applaud you on that particular analysis. I think that's good. Uh, and, and it's definitely a, 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 not an easy paradigm shift to make actually to sort of get that mu- so in the head of the character that you're seeing these visions that are not there, right? Right. But getting to the thing with the doll, you know, first of all, just to clarify, um, Nina doesn't discover it. Lita comes out with it. You know, she says, I have something else to give you. And yeah, I think what you're referring to is when Nina presses her, like, why did you keep the doll? That Lita says, I don't know. I just don't know. I think that's what you're referring to. And yes, I mean, this is, it's so outlandish. It's so far-fetched that it is one of the things where it's like reality check, you know? I mean, yes, we can, we can, you know, we can use creative license and so on, but, and, and there's so many things about Lita that we don't know, we don't understand. And she, you know, she has a complicated life and, you know, complicated relationship with motherhood clearly but that she would just put herself out there like that to this woman that she, you know, that she has a certain intimacy with, but barely knows is just insane. And it's an insane move. And if you want to like, I mean, I don't know how many people are getting the movie from our conversation about it, but if you want to just reveal what happens next, I, I, I throw the opportunity to you. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, given, given her perceived mental state, it's not out of left field that she would do that. It's just like, you know, given our sensibilities, um, you just would just not say anything. Like I was, I was cleaning it and like any sort of excuse would have done, uh, when she was like, why, why do you have this? I mean, I, I kept it. And why? I don't know. (laughs) I just don't know. (laughs) And Nina was like, I think she said, like, that's fucked up. You're fucked up. And yeah, earlier in the film, she bought this hat and she and uh, Lita was like, oh, why don't you get a hat pin so your hat doesn't fall off when it's windy? Yeah. And she takes the hat pin and she stabs Lita with it. It was pretty deep, too. It was in the abdomen. Yeah. Puncture like intestine or liver or stomach, maybe. It was pretty visceral, and I did not expect that. I was like, oh, shit. And the movie continues from there, and I was like, are we going to address that you got stabbed uh, right now? And as the movie progresses, I think it kind of did uh, address it, but yeah, she gets stabbed. Yep. Would you would you mind if I do my sort of encapsulation of the or or sort of my interpretation of like the final stretch of this film? Does it feel like the right time for that to you? That is yes, please. Okay, awesome. So there's a there's a, a another one of the 
um, flashback scenes of her, you know, as a younger mother, 20 years prior, roughly with her young children. And the, the film uses a song to really heighten the emotion of that scene or the feel, the vibe of that. I think it's Aretha Franklin. I, I could be wrong and I should know just based on the, on the, the voice alone. But, but that's my mm-hmm. theory in any case, for lack of a better one, Aretha Franklin. I found, I find that to be really crutchy using music in a way like that. And if, you know, in films, um, I, okay. I can give example, I, I'm not against music, music and films, but I think, especially in romantic comedies. I mean, it's over the top the way that it's used as a crutch, but I think this was a version of it being used in the, as a crutch as well. And then, so shortly after that, they cut to Lita. This is basically the last 10 minutes of the film. Um, she is driving the car kind of she's 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 so she's been stabbed this is actually a great moment as she's getting ready to leave you know she's going to drive her car to wherever the airport or wherever she's going to go she basically stands at the top of the stairs of this place where she's been staying and she just proceeds to kick her luggage down the stairs it's like i don't need to you know (laughs) these things are all sealed up i don't need to you know i'm just going to kick them down that's all i got energy for and then she's like driving on these winding roads and like on the verge of passing out and then she drives over to the, she pulls over the side of the road, you know, and kind of not quite collapses, but manages to like spring from the car. And she winds up on this rocky beach, which is where the movie starts, we should say. Yep. Right. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a trope, you know, using like a, a, a foreshadowing scene at the beginning of a film and then coming back to it. And so that's one of those, this is, this is one of those tropes. And so she, she traipses across the front of, you know, down, down the rocky beach to the shore and is, as at the water and kind of standing there, like as if she's kind of contemplating her life. And then we we see her from a wider distance than we see at the beginning of the film collapsing on her side, down on the water, you know, down on the shore. And then it proceeds to her, uh, I should say it cuts to her the next morning with the waves, kind of the gentle sort of bay waves lapping at her. And she wakes up with like a little splash of water from the bay, you know, from the tide. Uh, and she gets up and she calls her daughter, presumably the high maintenance one. And she sits down and, and, and it's her birthday and she's like, happy birthday. And she's talking to her daughter. And then at one point, and, and this is, I, I, I didn't even recognize this. I think I was so like taking in processing so much the first time I saw this. She, an orange appears like, oh, I've got an orange. Right. And this is like a through line from when she was a younger mother, where she has this special trick that the daughters love, where she peels the orange in a, in a cylindrical sort of way. And it becomes a serpent or a snake. Right. So which which they really love. So she's doing this as she's talking to her daughter. You know, meanwhile, she's been stabbed. And then the soundtrack plays, you know, again at the end of the movie. And here's what I wrote. The last 10 minutes not only don't help, they they unfold as abstract expressionist bullshit. (laughs) So that, ladies and gentlemen, is my final word on the lost daughter. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, to link it back to uh, contemporary arts, 
uh, since you also talk to <laughs> modern artists, uh, which are podcasts, the conversation, a lot of, a lot of modern art gets a lot of flack because it's like very abstract, um, very metaphorical in ways, maybe too much. And I think the, the way you approach modern art is by, is it a conversation piece? And I think a lot of modern artists fall flat because they're rehashing already had conversations. Um, I've been to many uh, contemporary art galleries uh, here in the city. And while there are quite a few where it's like, oh, this is thought-provoking, amazing, well done. Some are like, this has been done before. It's 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 like the equivalent of like, I go to an art gallery and I see like a toilet. And it's like, why are you putting a toilet there? Like Duchamp did that over a hundred years ago. Like you're not doing anything new. Um, this is a conversation that's been had already. Like if you want to rehash Dadaism, do it in a more interesting way and maybe it'll spark a new movement. Um, but going back to the film, Lost Daughter, I could see why, um, given uh, your theory on the film, where it's like expressionism on film uh, to the point where it's like almost meaningless. There is no meaning. Like, oh, it's up to your interpretation. Yeah, but did you have a intent when filming this or are you just kind of doing vague movements and like try to make it meaningful that way? Um, I do like your... Uh, analysis thank you um, of the final movements because like it is strange and kind of disjointed and a little bit messy disjoint is a good word yeah because like i was left even though it is a thought-provoking film and a, and a good uh introspective on this type of character played by lita uh played by olivia coleman yeah um it's just the ending Maybe she didn't really stick the landing. Absolutely. That, that's exactly, that was exactly my sentiment. That is probably the biggest, the, the, definitely. It's the biggest problem is that, you know, there's a lot of ambition here. There is a lot of, um, that is to say, it's complicated. You know, there are a lot of moving right. parts. There, yeah. you know, there's a lot of great scenes. There's a lot of great acting. But, what is the overall takeaway here? And she so fucked up the landing. There is no sticking of a landing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she fucked up the landing. It, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. She, 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 she tumbled in that landing. She tumbled. She didn't get the gold medal. <laughs> Something you reminded me of it in what you were saying uh, too just a moment ago it, that I think bears mentioning is that the movie is based on a novel by Elena Ferrante. Um, and one among many things that I could say about that, one thing I will say is that I have not read more than one Elena Ferrante book, but I did read the first of the My Brilliant Friend trilogy. And the adaptation that has been three seasons, I think, on HBO, My Brilliant Friend, fucking brilliant. Hmm. That is a really, really fucking high bar for Elena Ferrante. So it sounds like 
maybe we should just read the book. <laughs> yeah. <based upon. laughs> yeah, you could you could say that. You could say that. Yeah. Yeah, I just did a whole season of adaptation, uh cinematic adaptations, and a lot of them were books. And there's definitely a good way to adapt the source material and a bad way. Right. I haven't read the book that this is based upon, right. but I can see how someone would this is probably very introspective. Um, Absolutely. Given the subject matter. Absolutely. Um, and to translate that to film yeah. would be very hard. Yeah. And would be, it would, it would require an immense skill set. Right. I don't know what that skill set is. Uh, it's, <laughs> you know, it's been done with other series in very creative ways, but like, you know, there, there's some finesse that you have to do. And I yeah. think, uh, I don't want to get off the fence yet. We're about to get there. Um, but maybe some little, some more finessing, some little, you know, maybe put it back in the oven, maybe cook a little bit longer. Great. Love it. Was yes. Needed. Yes. 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 You undercooked it. You, 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 the landing, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use. I actually do like, I really do kind of like the, the, the image of, um, yeah, you know, Maggie, just, you know, put it in the oven for, you know, another 15 minutes. I think, you know, I think that'll help. Yeah. Like, uh, what would Gordon Ramsay say about this? <laughs> or would she be chopped? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. 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 So let's get into the final segment of the show. Okay. Off the fence. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions about the lost sure. daughter. We're going to get definitively off the fence, yes or no, and why. So the first question I have for you is about Lita. Was Lita a Karen? Ooh, was Lita Karen? That's a fascinating question. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to say no. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I was – so I think uh, Armand is, if nothing else, of referring to – there was a scene in a movie theater that she where she's initially like one of the few people in the theater and then this this incredibly rowdy group of dudes, you know, in their early to mid-20s come in are just like total assholes. I think her calling the, the usher on them was totally not a Karen move at all. Right. Like if I was in that position, I, I would have left. I would right. have left. Yep. Give me my money back. Yep. Like screw this. I have more important things to do than to. Yeah. It just blew my mind that everyone in that theater was like, oh, what? They're just, you know, throwing popcorn at the screen and yelling. And it's like, uh, just, why don't you just be respectful and shut the fuck up? <laughs> I, it actually seemed like they wanted to be, you like to, to ruin everybody else's experience. It, it kind of seemed right. like that almost. Anyway. Right. They're yeah. being they're being knuckleheads. Knuckleheads. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, she was a kind of Karen-ish in my eyes, but I think she just had issues, unresolved issues mostly. Yes. It wasn't like, you know. So my next question was is so my next question is, was Lita a good mother slash person? Uh wow. Um no, she was not a good mother. You, you you don't leave your kids at five and seven for three years and be a good mother. No, no, she's definitely not a good mother. Is it possible that she could be a bad mother and a good person? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, whatever her relationships are with other people in her life, she can be a good person. But with her children, she is she was not a good mother. And it didn't sound like, based on 
the little that we learned about her relationship with them as young, you know, as young 20 somethings that that was resolved or that they have forgave her. That It's not clear, but I imagine my sense is that it was not, you know, that, that, that things were, they were in touch, but, but, but it's somewhat estranged. Right. Uh, cause I just wonder with this character, what happened when she returned to her kids, you know, because like she left them when they were very young for three yeah. years, yeah. but what did she do after that for her to be estranged from her kids? So like, there's probably some sort of other event that we don't know about. Maybe it's fleshed out in the books. Probably not. Um, but overall to me, I don't think she was a good mother at all. You don't leave your kids like that. Right. Um, yeah, I mean that's it's it's a very selfish move. Uh I understand that she was trying to, you know, do her own thing and be successful but like not to the detriment of your family, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But she did to 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 whatever credit it's worth, which is not much. She does she does actually use that word in her one of her conversations with Nina. She says, "I'm a selfish person." Right. Right. Oh. At least she knows she has an issue. Yeah. That's step one. Yep. <laughs> step one. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So given the film's ending with Lita on the beach, do you think she found reconciliation with her daughter that she called? <laughs> reconciliation. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Her daughter's already an adult, right? So mm-hmm. what does a reconciliation look like when your daughter is 23, let's say? Um <sighs> The you know so I mean I, I I'm going to put the question back to you. She's sitting there again. I I can't underemphasize this. She's sitting you know on these steps just up, just above the shore and having a phone call with her daughter on her birthday after she's been stabbed right with this with this hat pin and she's found this orange which she is peeling in a way that you know is so. Uh, symbolic in relation to her daughters and then this this gossip this soul soundtrack is you know is bursting through our speakers at the end of the film How, you know what what does that tell you exactly i mean i'm not i don't know it doesn't give me any clarity about their their reconciliation so if i remember correctly so she's leaving in, under the cover of night to leave this hotel she seems like she crashed her car. She stumbles to the beach. Still night. She collapses on the beach, wakes up. It's dawn. The water's splashing upon her face. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but when she collapsed on the beach, she was wearing gray. And then when she woke up, she was wearing white. Right. Inconsistency. Yeah. So I think that might have been intentional. And this goes with my next question, too. Um do I think she found reconciliation with her daughter? Maybe, but I don't think it's in the physical realm. I think it's in the spiritual realm. Because let me ask you this. Do you think Lita died in the end? I would right. say that she did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> well, I'm going to say she dies eventually. That could be in five years. That could be in 10. That could be in 20. But, you know, again, this is, this is all part of, again, coming, it's coming back to the, the abstract expressionism, if you will, um, in a bad way. Uh, she, she was stabbed 
she passes out on the beach, but then she wakes up in the morning, you know, in daylight. Mm -hmm. So as bad as she, and then she gets on the phone and calls her daughter. So as bad as she's doing, she's not so bad that she feels, you know, that she's passing out, that she needs to, feels like she needs to rush herself to the hospital, et cetera. So maybe, you know, it missed all the organs is what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, I, maybe. I don't know. I don't know either. It wasn't very clear. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And let me just say too, Armand, for, for for whatever this is worth, this this is just came to mind for the second time, but and I thought I should mention it. I, I saw this film for the first time with my girlfriend, and she kind of watched bits and pieces the second time as I watched it. She said, "I hate this character. I hate Lita. I don't know exactly why, but I hate her." So, so for whatever that's worth. There's many reasons not to like Lita, I would say. <laughs> I don't know if it's leaving her family, uh, withholding information from this seemingly innocent family uh, on the beach. It's just, I don't know. There's not many redeeming qualities for her. Um, her just being a jerk to random people too, especially uh, um, Ed Harris's character. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Because, like, he clearly liked her, and then she was like, screw you, leave me alone. But I'm going to say I like you. Oh, shoot, that was awkward. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to run away like a child. Well, well but, they, but they had that dinner together, though. You know, he came back yes. with the octopus, and they had that dinner together. And that was, that was equally unclear because the, here they were just being sort of friendly. They were, you know, they were, they were being platonic in their dinner essentially. But then, you know, they're sitting on the couch and she puts her head on him and he kind of rebuffs that a little bit. It feels like, so I don't know. We're getting in a bit into the weeds here. I don't know if you want to wrap up. <laughs> <and stop that. laughs> I think that goes well with my next question. Yeah. Was this a strong opening film for Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial career? I think career-wise, I think there are two answers. I think career-wise, yes, because it, it's definitely been critically well received. Yes, and this is why I wanted to talk. I want to go on any podcast I can and, and say why I think that's wrong. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly, I'm really frustrated by. I feel like some critics are probably just a, giving it a thumbs up because they don't want to. Bear the wrath of Maggie Gyllenhaal, who has, who I, I feel like, who, who I feel like has a lot of, a lot of power. In any case, I could be wrong about that. Um, so I think it's a good career directorial debut. As far as a film directorial debut, I'm going to say, as you said at the very beginning of our, you know, of our analysis of this film, mixed, mixed. Yeah, I got off the fence a little too quick. Yeah, it, I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's not a bad movie. But it's not a great movie. Absolutely. It's kind of, there are redeeming qualities about it, and there's yep. some messy elements to this movie. It's, it's truly a mixed bag. And I think it showcases, you know, a directorial debut um, because, like, it's either you nail it and it's like lightning in the bottle and it's amazing, or there's some rough edges to it that you polish and you refine over you know, many films because you learn from your mistakes. 
Right. You know, if you didn't learn anything from your previous work, then you're not going to grow as a creative. So I think Maggie Gyllenhaal, when it comes to directing, um, has much to learn. And that's not a bad thing. Um, I would love to see her next film and see, you know, what she does and how she refined her craft. Um, but is it a strong film? I will say no. Um, but I am curious to see where her career goes from here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, she wrote and directed this film, even though it was, you know, it was based on a Lana Bronte novel. She did write and direct this film. I would like to see her write a film from scratch and direct it. I, I'd be curious. Mm. I'd be open to see that film for sure. But I do feel like I've already invested, you know, now with your podcast about five and a half hours <laughs> on the lost daughter so so i'm gonna give maggie gyllenhaal a few years at least i think that's uh safe to say yeah <laughs> all right i'm glad we're on the same page now my final question would you recommend the lost daughter to a friend I, I would say, nah, you know, I, 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 have you seen this film? Have you seen that film? I'm going to say that first, you know, um, okay. I, you know, I, I think it's, it, it, you know, when you get into the logistics of that kind of dynamic, like with, with somebody who, who you're recommending a film to, I, I know I'm getting way off the, the answer here, but it's like, you don't just say yes or no. And then they answer, right. It's like, Oh, well, actually, I have some really strong feelings, but really negative feelings. And then they're like, oh, well, I'm kind of curious to see this film now. I'm going to see if I agree with you about all those strong feelings that you have. You know what I mean? So short answer, no. Long answer, well, they're going to watch it anyway. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. <sighs> like, if it was, say if it was like Tommy Wiseau's The Room, where I do have strong feelings about that because the film is terrible in a great way. It's right, like, it's so right. bad that it's good. You right. got to see this movie. Right. I'm not saying that the lost daughter is a bad film, but it's like, it's not a, it's okay. It's, it's a movie. Um, so 
I mean, the strongest element that I would recommend is Olivia Coleman's performance. Um, I thought that was, like I said in the beginning, the crowning jewel of this movie. But I'm just going to say I would not recommend this movie because there's better Olivia Coleman projects. Um, you have the favorites. If you want a TV show, Broadchurch. Like, there's, she does the same amount of energy in a better, in a better project. Yeah. So you you can skip this, watch the favorite, watch Broadchurch. Yeah. Uh, even watch her early stuff, Peep Show. Um, there's there's better stuff to see her in it. Um, I would not recommend The Lost Daughter. I'm sorry, Maggie. Sorry, Maggie. Sorry, Maggie. If, if you haven't seen The Favorite, yeah, for sure, I would say. If, if you haven't seen The Favorite, spend two hours with that, not with Lost Daughter. Yeah. Absolutely. I yeah. 100% agree. Nice. Are you ready to close this out? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, let's do it. But that's it for this time on Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We've been talking about The Lost Daughter. Please don't check it out where it is available. But if you want to, you know, it's streaming right now. <laughs> uh, but before we go, thank you, Michael, for coming on to the show. This has been a blast talking about Thank this you movie. for having me, Armand. I really am glad I finally got the opportunity to uh, express my displeasures. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're welcome. And if you want to hear more of Michael, please check him out on his podcast, the conversation art podcast <laughs> wherever you find your podcasts but if you want to keep this conversation going please add us on your favorite social media platform at syndicate that is syndicates on instagram twitter and letterboxd have discord feel free to join the film community there at syndicate.com forward slash discord where you can catch myself along with other podcasters and listeners talking about this film and others. But if we missed anything during this conversation, please send us a message at info at syndicate.com or visit the website syndicate.com. Until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye. mother.